0: My guest this week is Peter Kaplowski, who you might know as the programmer of TIFF's Midnight Madness series for the last couple of years, or as the producer of The Void, The Interior, and Man He also turned up as the villain in Justin DeClue's Teddy Bomb, and he and Justin run the Laser Blast Film Society screening series at the Royal in Toronto, where they celebrate lost classics from the VHS era of the 80s and 90s. This Thursday, December 20th, they're presenting a new digital restoration of Rene Manzor's Dial Code Santa Claus, a thriller about a latchkey kid fending off a Santa-suited predator with surprising violence that predates Home Alone by a full year. So you should see that. Peter Pick Don't Let the River Beast Get You, Charles Roxburgh and Matt Farley's 2012 salute to small-town monster movies, starring Farley as Neil Stewart, a man who returns home after fleeing in shame years earlier because he said he saw a monster and no one believed him. And if that synopsis makes you think of the disposable creature features Roger Corman used to crank out in the 50s and 60s, well, yeah. But in practice, Don't Let the River Beast Get You is a much, much stranger experience, and one I wasn't really expecting. If you know Matt Farley's work, it's apparently all part of a continuum, so here's Peter to explain it. This is someone else's movie.
1: Well, uh, I chose Don't Let the River Beast Get You because I think it does represent... My uh, passion for outsider artists. And to go back even further, Matt Farley, who is sort of the visionary behind the film... He didn't direct the film. His friend Charles Roxburgh, who's his regular collaborator, directed the film. But Matt produced it, starred in it, co-wrote it. It, Wrote the songs. Wrote the songs. It, It is an extension of the Matt Farley cinematic universe. And who is Matt Farley? Uh, why should anyone care about this guy? Why do I care so much about him? He's actually one of the first filmmakers I ever saw in, as, in my capacity as a curator. Okay. And my first year at Toronto After Dark, uh, uh, my first year as a feature programmer for that film festival, uh, I happened to see his film Freaky Farley. And uh, it was this low-budget, shot on 16mm, which is a rarity in the mid-2000s, yeah, uh, right. film that was a sort of like a slasher in the style of a Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, not even the first one. Definitely decisively a, a tribute to sort of Part 2 of that series, right. uh, among other sort of B-movies and regional community horror films. And, I, and when initially watching it, I was like, is this just a bad movie, or... Or is he in on the joke? And as I watched it, I was like, no, he isn't on the joke. And yet there's this incredible tension between earnestness and irony where I felt like he was never dipping over on either side. And I emailed him at the time. And I, I actually emailed Charlie Roxburgh at the time to just be like, hey, listen, I really appreciate your movie. And I actually did pitch it to my bosses at Toronto for Dark, and they didn't think they could do anything with it. And I wanted to apologize for that, but just to say that like I appreciate what you're doing. And then I didn't think about them, really. I, I kept it on my shelf with a lot of the other weird movies that I see as a curator. Um, I have this box uh, <laughs> that uh, is dedicated to all the stuff that... I think is wonderful and bizarre and weird and most of which has never to this day you know 10 12 years later has never been released yeah we were
0: talking about that a little while ago the stuff that
1: you see the stuff that i see that just never never comes out yeah i mean because some stuff makes it even as far as uh as like a a premiere at a film festival Mm -hmm. and then
0: never comes out yeah (laughs) i've I've seen five or six films that no one else has in that capacity yeah just because they were they were submitted to something or you, you get the feeling like you're the only one. I'm sure I'm not the only one. But yeah. but no one else I know has ever seen X, Y, and Z. So I had, uh, I had not thought of uh, Matt
1: Farley uh, or this movie for a few years. But then I was doing a screening... Uh, of a film that had witches in it. Uh, I think it was Eyes of Fire, another really fantastic movie that deserves to be re-released at some point, also by an outside art filmmaker. And because Freaky Farley had some scenes with witches in it, I was like, oh, let me just get all those scenes and cut them up and put them in a pre-show. And then watching it again, I was like, man, I'm really charmed by this guy. I wonder what he's been up to in the last 10 years. And it turns out he's written 20,000 songs and earns a passive income of now $30,000 a year from people accidentally listening to his music on Spotify, <laughs> he has been on uh, The Tonight Show. Uh, he has uh, where I, I, a friend of mine likes to joke that, you know, if you were on The Tonight Show in the 70s it would make your career. Today, you yeah. were just a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's a blip. But, and he was, remained a prolific filmmaker and uh, the first film I went to watch after you know, re- rediscovering this sort of eccentric um, creator, outsider artist, folk artist, was Don't Let the River Beast uh, Get You. And I think, out of all his movies, um, I think that this is sort of his masterpiece. Like, I think it's the purest distillation of ex- the tone and spirit that he is trying to capture in his tributes to uh, the regional cinema that y- y- one could argue span from, like, the late 60s to the early 80s in America and middle America. Yeah. Uh, the Don Dolers um, of the world, uh, you know, the, the the folks that sort of followed in Ed, Ed Wood's wake, these kind of huckster filmmakers that just want, you know, got their community together to make a movie uh, with the hopes of it making some money. Um, and, and the thing that's always just sort of struck me about Matt is that he's kind of a guy who decided he wanted to be a celebrity, um, but he didn't want to move to a town that you should move to if you want to be a celebrity he lives in Danvers Massachusetts mm-hmm. and he just said you know what i'm just going to build my universe here through my songs of which you know I'll, again he's written 20,000 songs they're so literally just songs about anything yeah. but over time you actually begin to hear na- meta narratives throughout the songs a good example i like to use is he has a singer called the his 72 different band acts and one of his acts is the guy who sings about towns and cities and he has an album called I've Never Left My Home Town," which is a tell-all about the fact that all these albums that he's written about towns and cities are completely made up. And uh, he's never left his t- town. He's waiting for this girl of his dreams. And it's this really actually kind of nice and sweet concept album. And so um, I just love that he's created this community. All his movies sort of star the same people in his town. None of them are professional actors. And the thing that I think is the enchilada for me is that he doesn't ask his actors and performers to set out to perform badly he just casts people who will give sincere performances that are just rather dopey and he'll just overwrite the script with his friends in a in a vernacular that is so esoteric and uh loquacious in in a really amusing way like people use adjectives like indecorous right uh or um this is the worst wedding of which
0: this is not the wedding this of which I dreamed. Is, this is
1: not the wedding of which I dreamt dreamt that's right and uh or for instance one of my favorite running gags in river beast is anytime they refer to a character's um son they were they they specif- specify that it was a son from another marriage right right and that repetition uh I find so hilarious. I also think the film, and I don't want to spoil on this podcast because I really want to encourage people to seek out this movie, which I think is a good starting place for the world of Matt Farley. I think it has one of the best punchlines in movie history. I think there's a punchline towards the end of this film regarding the character played by Kevin McGee, uh, who is one of my favorite actors in the uh, the stable of Matt, the Matt Farley cinematic universe, or I should call the Motarn. Yeah. media universe because that's his sort of fake conglomerate company that owns all these properties Mo- moturn media
0: yeah i was referring to it as the Farleyverse, but that just makes people think of chris farley yeah 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 no uh, i
1: call it yeah it's Moturn media uh, so it is still an mcu it's the Motern cinematic universe <laughs> the Moterniverse. uh i i mean i even refer to this this ethos that matt has is modernism this <laughs> idea of don't wait for permission to make something don't wait for permission for someone to validate what you're making is good or interesting if you like creating something simply do it and in the last few years those are the artists i've been attracted to and i've been finding myself more fascinated and it's the type of artists that i try to champion in what the film festival artists that i feel are really working uh and creating work for the pure enjoyment of the process of making that work and creating a community with their friends and with the and and so that the very act of production uh is part of the art itself matt has a podcast as well of course he does he (laughs) self-aggrandizes calls himself the greatest singer-songwriter of all time on it Uh, but he also says things like you know, like who go? Like why Why would you go to a party or a barbecue? That's not the worst thing you can do in the world. Make a movie, and it's like the equivalent of the social experience you're gonna have at the party, but so much better because at the end of this party, and uh, quotation marks, you're gonna have a movie. Right? <laughs> like just invite everybody over. Let's make a movie together. And I just really find that spirit so so endearing. This
0: is not wrong
1: either. <laughs> so to.
0: That was a roundabout way of talking yeah, about yeah, the yeah, film. Yeah. The specific plot of the movie... Oh, you, I mean, don't feel like you have to go into it. <laughs> Just because people will... I mean, ideally, yeah. people are going to listen to this because they've seen it or because they're curious about it. But yeah, we, yeah I, there's no reason to go beat for I beat. mean, I feel like... I, I didn't know that you
1: could either. Uh, no, because it's a movie that is sort of a string of bizarre vignettes and episodes under a loose sort of monster attacks a town yeah. framework. And one of the reasons why I thought it would be like fun to do is because it does... I feel, I know you're a big Jaws fan, and I yeah. feel like it's definitely in the tradition of maybe
0: Jaws rip-offs. Well, I was going to say, the River Beast itself is not, I mean, it's glimpsed at the very beginning, and yeah. they not seen for, what, 50 minutes? Well, there's this wonderful oh, gag where they open the film with a William Castle
1: spoof, uh, with right. the idea that the River Beast is such a scary image that the producers have been recommended to warn the audience before it shows up by flashing uh, a red, um, two red, frames. Two red yeah. frames before before it shows up. Uh, and it the river beast gets an early appearance, maybe in the first eight minutes, but it doesn't really show up again for like an hour and ten minutes. And I and I began to re- also really enjoy how the red frames became a pretty funny punchline. There's a moment too where someone just sort of absently says, ah, "I'm just going to go into the woods now," and it, and, yeah. and it does the the flash frame. Uh, and it's literally been like maybe forty minutes since we last seen the river beast, so it comes as a as a pretty fun punchline. Um,
0: yeah, I I kept. Uh, I mean you described it as a tension and it's exactly it's exactly right because I kept being reminded that the film is more clever than the characters in it and the yeah. the execution is sort of part of the game and sort of not sort of not because at the at the end of the day like
1: the um you know they they're, they're not they're, they're filmmakers using meager resources, and... Um, yeah, they don't have lighting. They don't have they lighting. Don't have costumes, I don't think. People are showing
0: up in their clothes from home.
1: Yeah, I mean, but I do feel like certain things are very strategic. Um, I've always been struck by how much Matt Farley looks exactly like Mark Wahlberg in The Happening.
0: It's funny, there are different angles where he looked like... Half the time I thought he, he looked like... Um, Oh, like just like every character actor from the '60s. Mm-hmm. There's a John Gavinness to him. Yeah. in some of the shows. There is definitely like an old where American uh,
1: type of actor kind of look to his face. It's like a. It's yeah. Uh, that I think is I think is very charismatic. I think he's just, I think he's a great foundation for all
0: these movies, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny it's the same thing that trey parker does in the first half of orgasmo yeah or just like johnny Whitebread. yeah he just sort of fades into the role yeah um and uses he uses the the look his his Mm all-americanism not against the character exactly but it's a signifier to us that the guy isn't as you know everyone says he's the best tutor in the world well he's this composite i feel
1: of 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 all these type of um, tropes of protagonists uh in kind of B movies, yeah. Uh, I mean, he's also like James Stewart in The Wonderful Life, basically, yeah. like this guy that the entire community is sort of enamored with, and he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders
0: as he moves through this uh, this world. Yeah, and then he transitions into Steve McQueen in The Blob. <laughs> yeah, just this yeah. this all American clean cut kid who's suddenly the only person because his age fluctuates. His I
1: age fluctuates. Too. I like that in the in the. Um, context or in the present in the proximity of the town's one police officer who is uh, played by jimmy hugh uh i believe matt's uncle uh <laughs> who uh he's incredibly, is bar- hostile to him. He- he's incredibly hostile to him also sometimes barely being able to get his lines out or like clearly 80 his lines are 80 to death because like he's tripping over his lines in a very endearing way um and that yeah he's very hostile to matt and matt suddenly snaps into like i'm a teenager in a 50s uh, biker gang movie in terms of his yeah. attitude and his like demeanor. Where in other scenes he's much more stately or more, uh, again, more in in a, in like a James Stewart, he's like an
0: adult figure of responsibility. Yeah, only when necessary. Yeah, uh, and then he's also, I mean, if you, yeah, I was trying to figure it out. If you just straight up line up his character and list all his attributes, he's an academic who destroyed his own career when he told people he saw a monster and no one believed him. Mm-hmm. Two years ago? Yeah. Believe, Four years yeah, ago? Yeah. It's I
1: mean, I love, too, that the film almost almost implies that it's a sequel to a, a film that we never saw. Like, there's, right. just a, there's an extended backstory and constant exposition of things that occurred yeah. that we, I guess, are now catching up on.
0: And the pulp quality, too. The noir quality of the girl he left behind who's yeah. gone to another man and all this other weird and there's these two there's stuff. two
1: reporters that are responsible for his bad reputation right. both of whom uh, anachronistically feel like they belong
0: you know in the 1940s well when does <laughs> the film take place right i I was trying to figure that out as well no one has a cell phone <laughs> no there are no computers in evidence um i think someone plays video games though i think it's a it's that's possible it's alluded to I
1: mean it's I mean and all the cars are of course modern yeah there's no attempt there's no
0: yeah exactly um, but the, the, there's no gloss or patina of period it mm-hmm. just isn't here whatever yeah. we're watching isn't now the thing that's interesting too about Matt's
1: movies is that each one takes place in a different town um, that might as well just be the same town like he, he pretty much shoots entirely in um, uh, Manchester New Hampshire uh, and a little bit in Danvers. Uh, but for the most part, he actually in New Hampshire, which is where he actually went to college and okay. so that's where he began his movies and but he's got Thomasville there's Rivertown here he's got um Manchester Vegas is the name of one which is the colloquial term for Manchester apparently from that region really? yeah they call it Manch Vegas cuz it's a college town so people kind of go like oh you're going to go to Manchester you're going to have a wild time <laughs> that's that's it's the it's the Las Vegas
0: of the party uh, town of New Hampshire of,
1: of New Hampshire yeah um <laughs> Man Vegas is one of them, and then his recent his recent film Slingshot Cops Woodville Center is the name of the town, so it's not even like a town; it's more like a borough.
0: Right. <laughs> and again, they're not they're 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 names that sound folksy but aren't real. No, they're they're a neverwhere kind of America. Yeah. That. Again, it all feeds into. I kept. I mean, while I was watching it, I was thinking about Larry Blamire. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, but the um, the lost saw uh, the lost. It's uh, the lost skeleton of Cadaver. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought
1: I, I definitely thought of lost skeleton of Cadaver when I first saw the film. I do think Matt is more successful at preserving an earnestness than I think Cadaver. Yeah, he, doesn't,
0: he doesn't wink.
1: Yeah, he doesn't he wink, wink or lean does. into it as much as Cadaver does. I mean, I honestly, I'm reminded of early John Waters. Uh, with a lot of the sense of community. It's like wholesome John Waters, though. Like, it's yeah. not per, it's not
0: perverse or dirty. Yeah, no one's depraved. Um, the, there's no... Like, the violence is off camera, mostly. When people get stabbed, it's not bloody. Yeah,
1: it's and a, and a lot of this... I mean, another way to sort of understand Matt's movies is he also has another podcast called Shock Marathons based on a series of books that he self-published with his friends where he would... Of course yeah, he did. Yeah, he would do 24-hour film marathons of straight-to-video uh, or just um, sort of B movie stuff, and then they would just write a book in the subsequent twenty four hours um, about that experience, and uh, that those films kind of listening, reading about those films and watching the movies, you begin to see the DNA mm-hmm. into in terms of what he's he's reaching for and what he's what sort of the tropes and iconography is inspired by. Because sometimes he actually does lean into a very explicit reference. There are lines in river beast, some of which I'm escaping me now. I know that when he when when um uh Matt's character is in put in prison at one point eating a a pitiful pita and pickle uh meal which I find is a really funny joke that this may be not even an intentional joke. But I feel like everything Matt thinks of everything I've come to learn. Uh <laughs> but he he says like, I'm in a cage, man which is like a real out of nowhere line reading and I'm I'm positive that line comes from a specific movie where okay, they're they're yeah. throwing like a specific movie reference in, but they always try to find the most esoteric lines that they can find. It's very rare that they'll they'll go for. I mean, the most most no uh, memorable line that I can think of that you, you, that I think most cult movie fans would recognize is in Freaky Farley, where someone says uh, "recruitment day" like garbage day from Silent Night Deadly Night 2. But right. I feel like ever since that movie they've been a lot less uh, obvious in terms of where their specific references are coming from
0: but that makes sense too because he's building these worlds for himself yeah and it's going to get weirder and more internal as you go mm-hmm. the thing that strikes me about uh Farley specifically mimicking regional filmmakers is that that's where you get carnival of souls that's where you get yeah. Night of the living dead yeah right? like these are these were really weird this was a really strange period in American cinema as, as you say where anything was possible I even feel like Martin is actually a really good like as a movie that
1: I think if Farley had uh, yeah. tweaked his sensibilities another way he could have made something like Martin like if if uh, he was leaning into something that was more serious but there's a quirk to the whole relationship between the grandfather and the son in that film that honestly feels like something out of a yeah uh, a Matt Farley universe well
0: Romero's like it, when I finally met him, it really surprised me how vaudevillian he was mm-hmm. in in his affect. Like he liked weird jokes, and he would slip into the same kind of eh, Stan Lee delivery that people of a certain age and a certain um, demographic, like New York guy guys who grew up on the East Coast in in the forties, would do. And I, yeah, Martin has these weird little burps of, of comedy. The crazy is is full of them, and. It all just... It went away because there's no humor in Night of the Living Dead. And as that sort of overtook, it eclipsed the rest of the work he did between Night and Dawn. Um, people just thought, oh, George Romero is a really scary guy. And it's like, he, was, he was like a grandfather when he was probably 25. He was <laughs> a weird, quirky guy. But there, yeah, there is a, a strange continuity between that and, and some of the attitudes in Riverbeast. Not necessarily any specific scene or any specific moment, but... Just the general openness to being goofy, and the the, mm-hmm. the way that maybe if you, yeah, if you if you don't come at this straight on, if you let the music tell the story, if you let the even you know like if you step down the the uh, the light, it would probably be creepier. Mm-hmm. But that's just not where Farley wants to go.
1: Yeah, no, I think he, he I think he always. I mean, he's he's a guy who's never swore in his entire life. He just decided when he was a kid he never swore. He's never had a hamburger until he turned forty, which he did the first time at his five and a half hour concert that he started doing for the last two years of which i've attended twice <laughs> and the thing about his concerts there's this five and a half hour show like the songs really short he well yes you listen you hear about like 50 60 songs Jesus. um and there are breaks there there are breaks through the five and a half hour show about 20 people on average go to this show no one from the same state okay. there were literally people from australia from belgium uh, at, at these shows and it's ama- Dan Deacon the uh, uh, our, uh, music, uh, the composer uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, he he, um, he went to the first show um, and at this show it's not just a concert it's actually like a meta Matt Farley narrative so characters from his films will show up in character and perform sketches in the middle of the show uh, like when I first actually met Matt, he was doing a walking tour of New Hampshire. So uh, me and a friend decided to go see if anyone would show up because uh, it was over the summer, and we're like, "Let's go, let's go meet Matt Farley." And we went, and only three people showed up. Our, my 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 two friends, like mm-hmm. my friend myself and my friend included, and a lawyer from Connecticut. <laughs> but you guys are going to tell this story for the rest of your life. The- oh, totally. And it wasn't just a walking tour. As we were walking through. The scenes from Riverbeast, characters from Riverbeast had been waiting for 90 minutes for us to eventually walk by so that they could show up and do a scene from the movie or like it was, it was a level of, it was only almost Kaufman-esque in, yeah. I mean, Andy Kaufman yeah, yeah, yeah. in terms of how high concept
0: and for so few people, this joke was. Right. Tommy Wiseau wishes he could do this. <laughs> yeah. Just in terms of the idea of crafting beyond the screen and that's
1: something I love about Matt is that he thinks of these ideas that everyone else would often just think with a group of friends and go great yeah that's that would be fun to do and then he goes no what what if we did it what if I did do that last year he did a Christmas special because it just came out of a conversation of like oh it'd be fun to do like a moturn Christmas special and just put it on YouTube and have people go what's this all about and he did like a full hour-long Christmas special um that was like a very Murray Christmas or any of those kind of like, right. but all about like the, his celebrity and his community of of people. And he's now working on, he's been always pissed off about music docs. And so he wants to finally make a music doc about himself. He already has his own biopic. It's called Local Legends, which I would legitimately think if that film was shot on 16 millimeter and came out in 1994, he would have had a Kevin Smith like trajectory or something like that. Okay. I think people would have really embraced what he was doing. Um, I do feel like, even though River Reese is my favorite movie, I miss the 16mm aesthetic of his earlier films. There was, like, an extra authenticity to them. Even though, I mean, I get it. Like, it's expensive to shoot on film, and it's only more expensive. Uh, and the fact that he's spending all this money on, on, on these movies, um, again, like, he... He loses money on almost everything he makes. He right. still has boxes of these DVDs and stuff. That was another thing on the Walking Tour. He'd be like, "Oh, take a look in that uh, that newspaper box. See what you find." It's like, "Oh, a copy of Ruby's. Thanks, Matt." <laughs> <laughs> so, it's... Uh, yeah, it's. I just. I, I mean, there are other f- filmmakers that I think exist in this sort of wave of of. Uh, of indie artists uh, that I've recently been fascinated with. Um, and I can totally go into those before we wrap up as well. But to stay <laughs> sure, on River yeah. Beast. I, I don't know what... what cause see, it, well, you, this was my first experience. This was your first it. experience. I, I yeah.
0: had heard... Basically, I, I was aware of Farley. Yeah. Um, the most information I had was probably from the Important Cinema Club episode yeah. that, that Justin and Will did, mm-hmm. um, where they delved into him and then actually had an interview with him. Yeah. But I having come up through the 80s like my first professional gig was reviewing literally everything that was released on VHS through the Star uh, for the home video magazine and I I would watch 30 to 50 movies a month Mm -hmm. because it was insane. Everything came out and there was was slick garbage, there was regular garbage, there was cheap garbage and then every now and then you would see something that had clearly been written. That had a, a, a sense of if not um, gravitas, at least sense of Identity. humor, or yeah, there was a signature, and you would start to see it here and there, and you would find people, or um, you know, before uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, but I like the first movie I ever reviewed professionally. I don't think I've ever told this story before. Was Return of the Killer Tomatoes? Okay, yeah, which is not bad. No, 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 uh, and introduced me to George Clooney yeah. among other things. And and you sit there and think, okay. I, having originally watched the first one, I don't know, five or six years earlier and not really thought too much about it because it was pretty dumb, to watch someone that I'd never heard of, uh, I can't even remember who the writers were now, but to watch these people figure out a way to do this properly, mm-hmm. to take this very stupid idea of killer tomatoes and then give John Aston a big mad scientist role and, and have... A running gag about product placement going through the yeah. entire film because yeah. they run out of money halfway through the picture and have to fund it themselves. Yeah. I just sat there and thought, this is so much better than it has any right to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it and it encourages your participation. Mm-hmm. Right? like it doesn't mm-hmm. just say, if you don't get it, you're dumb. It keeps going. It, it keeps building the joke and trying to pull people in.
1: It's funny because your experience watching all these movies as a reviewer, uh, specifically like that kind of era and those
0: kind of releases, mm-hmm. and this was in the days when you didn't get a box art. You, yeah, you got a black cassette <laughs> with a white sleeve. Yeah, and a cutout to show to show you. But what it's like
1: was. it's like what I've done for the last twelve years as a programmer. Yeah, i In sure. that I'm just getting discs, or and honestly, right? the first year I. Did after Dark, uh, first two years, we were still getting VHS submissions. It was like the last yeah. gasp of VHS submissions.
0: That's how I saw... What's the one that was the most fun experience? Oh, Undead, the Spirit Brothers oh. movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Tiff was still giving us tapes. Yeah. And they gave me a cassette of it, uh, and it was the Midnight Madness closer. Yeah. But I didn't know that at the time. I just knew that this was The new this like it was a month before the festival and it was dropped in a bunch of stuff and I found it and it said Undead on it like all right I'm in that sense of discovery is wonderful but that's I think that's where that's where
1: I I think I have developed this taste and affinity for some of these filmmakers because I will watch a wave of mediocrity a wave of stuff that feels like it is made purely to validate its own existence it's like we just we're going through the steps just so that we have the bare minimum of what constitutes a movie um, or. we're making a film because we really want to make another film, but this is our stepping stone film.
0: Right. But How many a- times have you seen a scream knockoff or a... Yeah, or, like or whatever follows earlier, whatever the thing was. Possession knockoff or
1: an insidious knockoff. Mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of times I I even meet with sales agents to say, hey, uh, we got this new sleep paralysis film. It's the first film about sleep paralysis. And it's like, no, it is yeah, not. No, it is not. <laughs> there's, this has been a, a little bit of a phenomenon for the last eight years. Yeah. Uh, and, then when- and then you see something that is... is is as you said, it is being made with an intentionality that it's it's written. And what I always like to refer to as decisions. You are seeing decisions being made. And yes, yeah. and I know that sounds glib because of course decisions get made on bad movies, but there, there's an arbitrariness to stuff. And when you see that you're like, I'm in the hands where someone actually has a vision and an idea and wants to take me somewhere, whether I think, whether it ends up being good or not, but there's, there's real decisiveness in the decisions. To me, when everyone... Ask like what do I look for in a film even if they're asking me to be specific about a Midnight Man film I just want to see something that's been directed like that really truly directed That and, and that their identity is woven and not, And when I mean identity I don't necessarily mean just the O'Tour. And because I think Matt's films are not just a product of Matt, they're a product of the people he has surrounded himself with. And I think so much of the charm comes from Charlie, comes from Tom Scalslow, Chris Peterson, Jim McHugh, Kevin, these, all these players are so in, in, intrinsic to why his movies work and why his music works for that matter too because they're all, many of them are involved in his music. Um, but it's that there is an identity, there is a soul to these films that other films simply just don't have. Yeah. Um, and, that is, and that's the best feeling and it must be as a, as a critic, too, when you're going through stuff. Oh, yeah. And then you have this moment of, like, okay, I had no expectations going into this thing, and I'm actually in the hands of someone who's telling me a story that I'm interested in hearing.
0: Yeah, I want to be surprised. Yeah. Just once in a movie is great. Twice yeah. is great. When you realize 20 minutes in that you're seeing something that no one's attempted before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I find like those movies interesting are... decisions, and this
1: is how yeah. I've sold what the film festival. It is an opportunity to see movies with decisions you have never seen before. Yeah. You will see a choice an actor that made that no actor has made that decision before, uh, yeah, for, and, good or <laughs> Ill. for good or ill. Yeah. For good or ill, but at the same time, when it's when it's a first, it, it it's going to be indelible at the very least.
0: Yeah. What was the? I can't remember. I'm blanking on the title. The the paradox, uh, the one last year about the the computer that figured out how to predict people's decisions uh oh uh elaborate title that is escaping me right now wait that what, was a wtf wasn't it a wtf computer movie hang on a second Or, a, or was it an algorithm or a paradigm is a bunch of people oh yeah place. the laplace's demon the laplace's
1: demon yeah so
0: that was something where again we have seen mm-hmm. so many of these movies that hinge on something being able to predict
1: yeah i mean because it was almost a close. saw film basically
0: yeah but it found a way to do it in a way that I'd never seen before, and yeah. I, I just again I remember thinking, oh, this is not what it could have been. Yeah, and it's better. Yeah. Um, you you know it, at this point I'm the uh, I'm thinking about Insidious partially because you just mentioned it, but also because my ten worst list was just finished and it's in there. The last, key. oh, the last. Oh, I, I haven't one. seen the last
1: key. I've always been frustrated with those films because I think that I think the first film is brilliant.
0: The first one's good. I think I, think the first I, one is I, I like mean,
1: a reverse poltergeist. It's a reverse poltergeist, but I actually think the first film. I I I feel like I'm a bit of a jaded horror guy because I sometimes don't get scared because I've just seen so many horror films. Yeah, yeah. But *Insidious* was a film that honestly, for me, was like this is the jaws of going to bed. I think the <laughs> concept the concept of that movie was so universal. The idea that if you have lucid dreaming and have an active imagination when you go to bed and you have like vivid dreams, those that actually could be an astral projection of that that is leaving your body exposed to a demon hopping into it. I found that. Really, really scary, and I really loved the universal quality of it, and I was frustrated that the sequels decided to localize it. They decided to go, well, actually, the old lady is this this cross stretcher that lived down the street, yeah I was like, like, one what yeah. no, 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 this should be like anyone you could be in Myanmar anywhere, yeah, and you go to sleep, and these demons are all over the place. this old lady can visit anyone that's the reason why there's this universal image of an old lady that sits in your yeah. Uh, your chest that like people with sleep paralysis have that's where they come from it's this idea that there's all these demons and I haven't seen the, I don't know did the last key uh, int- bring back Darth Maul
0: uh- <laughs> and, uh, he's around they're all because
1: I, I always felt like they didn't take advantage of that element yeah. even though it was a goofy element in the first film it was also like okay this is weird it's
0: the biggest scare in the film I it's mean, the best
1: I, scare in the film and brought I it back. And I wonder if I'm allowed to. I'm, I'm, I think I'll be okay to say this um So the end of Insidious 2, Mm -hmm. uh, this is a weird segue, but the reason I want to bring this up, the end of Insidious 2, there's like the the final moment is a character looking and seeing um, something in the corner of the room, and you just don't see what's in that corner of the room, and it's like, oh, what could she be seeing? It's really scary. There's a version of the film that must have been... It must have been a version when we were considering it for a film festival. Mm -hmm. uh, where you see that it's just a gang of people with their face on fire. Like, a gang of the... And I'm like,
0: that's That's such a more
1: interesting idea. And I just wanted that series to go in that direction. I really wanted that series to to explore, like, gangs of demons. It's the same with The Conjuring. I really liked Conjuring. I like the concept of The Conjuring 2. So
0: self-limiting.
1: The concept of Conjuring 2 that... That the the Conjuring Two is a sting operation. It's a demon sting operation. Demons have been like, we don't like these guys. Yeah. we don't like the Warrens. They're on we're, our turf. we are on our turf. We're gonna set up a sting. We're gonna like in, get them invested in the case. And but we've actually got this other spirit who's got a whole like that is. That is such a cool idea, and I feel like the movies don't take advantage of it. They go in like the other direction. Yeah.
0: No, my biggest problem with the insidious movies and with the saw movies and with the conjuring movies is that now they're simply about people wandering around waiting for the thing to happen. Yeah. It just bores the crap.
1: I am a, I, I mean, am a bit of an apologist for the Saw film somehow. Oh, and, someone and has to be I mean, I it's it's partially because me and my friends decided to binge them all in one oh, day. Oh god. And uh, it became kind of like we got into the soap opera rhythm of it, and we weren't really enjoying ourselves. See, A lot of people go like, well, the first one is pretty good. I kind of disagree. <laughs> For me, that movie comes alive when they start in, in kind of four and oh, at the end of three. Oh, Jigsaw's family? Well, they're introducing multiple Jigsaws, and they're doing the cross. Like, one movie is taking place at the same time as the other movie. Right. That's when I started to kind of enjoy it. And I really like the collector and the collection films that uh, that followed them. I thought those films were actually Legitimately, I think, great yeah, those are movies.
0: decent executions of that premise. The thing that's missing from the Saw movies for me is that there needs to be... Now that we know how complex the mythology yeah, is and yeah. how many moving parts there are, I want the Noises Off version. I want to watch the other doors where people are kind of moving back and forth and one person has to... Because the, the, the assistants well, don't know I, each I other's existence. I
1: actually think that element is why I liked 4 a little bit, because it does get into that a bit. Because part of 4 is kind of like, oh, this is how... This is what was happening right, across yeah. all these other movies. That's kind of funny, um, yeah, but it and just, I don't. But I was so surprised that the Spirits brothers were so lifeless, I know. and I really don't know what happened because I, when between they were that
0: in Winchester, I think they were just working to delivery, right? Like I guess, and it's, and it's, it's, and, but Winchester at least had some really interesting ideas. Yeah, I just, again, it's still people walking into a dark room waiting. For sure, to go Sure, sure,
1: but it at least had this angle about gun control set yeah. then that was like oh this is kind of an interesting idea and and, and the idea of spirits being uh, connected to an a ob- uh, weapon to of violence that, killed them, that yeah. killed them I thought that was a neat neat yeah. idea
0: that's the stuff that came up within the room to sell it and then it just got
1: yeah, yeah and it moves. Just, just felt vanilla but jigsaw I, I feel like I actually feel there's so much potential oh there absolutely with is. with with jigsaw I,
0: uh, I pitched one on on Twitter uh, yeah? that week and the writer of jigsaw one of the writers went, oh, that's a good idea yeah <laughs> you can have it do something but it's uh yeah if we could do that yeah we could we do could, that we whole. could talk about jigsaw and the uh, potential saw franchise extensions now, on now would you now now would you watch another film by Matt Farley I would watch Matt Farley's jigsaw. <laughs> Actually, uh, yeah. I would be curious. I found it really, like the the idiosyncrasy was really interesting, mm-hmm. and the sense that I was watching somebody who knew what he wanted to do mm-hmm. and was doing it, mm-hmm. whether or not it worked. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that I liked the experience of it. Mm-hmm. I I think there's stuff in it that I'm going to enjoy thinking about. Mm-hmm. But overall, like it's too long. Yeah, it's 97 minutes and could have been eighty. I mean, mm-hmm. most of these things need to be 75 to 80 minutes, just because otherwise. If the whole point of it is you're referencing a type of film that already exists, then... Like, I find that that premise is really elastic, but it snaps back really hard if you mm-hmm. get to the end of the rubber band and you start thinking, well, I could actually be watching The Creature from the Black Dynamite. I
1: mean, I know that. I definitely understand that instinct. I remember when Black Dynamite came out, a lot of people were really critical of that movie, going like, I'll just watch a exploitation film. Yeah. And I agree with that that sentiment, though I've also sometimes argued that I think that's the wrong lens to watch Black Dynamite in. Because yeah. I actually think Black Dynamite is basically doing Airplane. Yeah, and yes, commentary. you could watch Airport 77, but... But airplanes more. But, Air, but airplanes might be more fun. Yeah. Though black dynamite. Does though it. I do understand a lot of black plantation films are just as fun, if not more fun, <laughs> yeah. than black dynamite. But with with, with Matt stuff, for me at least, I have always found that he has ended up transcending the material because I just like the characters and I like hanging out with them and I just find them to be sort of a novel in sort of endearing group of
0: individuals to there, to yeah. chill around with. There is a really weird sweetness. Mm-hmm. To the relationships, I mean, just the the guy in the basement who becomes our hero's room. Yeah, Teddy. Teddy uh, is such um, a strange, supportive adversary. Mm-hmm. They fight for nothing. <laughs> uh, you know, I saw well, her first. This really—it's the, weird it's the
1: same as this Tudor friends that fight all the time in like a weird kind of way. That it's as if we've been watching TV series, and it's like ah, these two and yeah. that's that's the relationship the movie is already assuming our endearment but at the same time for me it it, it wins me over um, I do wonder what you would think about his biopic Local Legends which is less of a spoof it's very much more um, so it's his biography of himself it's basically a biography that explains his, he said and he was getting tired of people asking him like what's his whole shtick and so like I'll just make a movie about it <laughs> Uh, and it's 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 one that he actually directed himself. Charlie worked on it, but he considered it was really mostly born out of his head. So that's why he took the director credit. Um, and it's black and white, and it's kind of you know going for a uh, Clerks meets uh, Annie Hall kind of vibe uh, at times. Uh, it's still like a shot on mini DV movie, mm-hmm. and it, you know it still has. Moments of weakness, but it's also under ninety minutes. <laughs>
0: so it's big fluff. Big plus. Big,
1: big plus. It might be a big plus there. I'm, I mean, it's it's award season. I'm coming off everything being two and three quarter hours. Yeah, that is true. That is true. And, and he, inc- incidentally, he's he's totally. Uh, when I last talked with him, that he is working on. So his next his. His last film, *Sling Sight Cops*, actually ran into the issue that you described for me at least, which is it was sort of a parody of '80s buddy cop movies, right. and I actually felt, you know what, that is a well that we've I've seen a lot of, yeah. and like there's Hot Fuzz, and there's. Uh, so many sort of movies that kind of riff on the heat like other hmm. movies that kind of riff on that kind of buddy cop dynamic and you and, would need a lot of money to do that right
0: I yeah well could see this working against his aesthetic
1: yeah that that and, and 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 elements of the film actually really do work and I think in I know Justin's a bigger fan of it than I am uh, I still like the film and just purely because I like his universe and like his characters but I did feel like there was a specificity to river beasts what it is parodying and what it is doing that felt broader in slingshot cops and therefore didn't work as much for me because i felt like it was stuff i could get from other movies right. uh but his next project uh which i'm not allowed to say the name of and will not repeat he swore me a secrecy it's a great title though get ready for it at some point but it, he is intending to write a movie that is more consciously um as he's put it, when characters say lines, they're supposed to be funny, and the characters know they're funny. Okay. Like, it's not going to be this kind of, like, like it's him going to be making much more of a sincere effort to be funny and not kind of subdiffuse it in a veil of parody. Like, it's going to be, like, kind of a legit story. I'd like to uh, see how that would work. And I, Yeah, I'm very intrigued to see how that works too, and I know they've been writing it over the past year, and I think he wants to do this muse, self-made music doc, which I think is going to be a parody of a Tom Petty Peter Bogdanovich <laughs> okay because he 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 for a long time he had a big rivalry with Tom Petty that Tom Petty was not aware about may he rest in peace I was
0: going to say this seems like the kind of thing that would be very one-sided
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was mostly that Peter Bogdanovich made like an 8-hour documentary of Tom Petty and he heard that Tom Petty asked Peter Bogdanovich to make the documentary and Matt Farley was like what <laughs> like the ego <laughs> which is he which i feel like he consciously knows that feels
0: performative to me it's yeah.
1: very performative because of course his ego is is the size of the movie he thinks he's the greatest singer songwriter of all time
0: does he really think that
1: uh i mean i, mean, I it- think there's part of it that he's like this part of my act is is being this braggadocious but i think if you've written 20,000 songs and you know right now he's wor- and he's got some legit albums cuz he's got a band called they they change their name all the time they used to be called Projection from the Side. Now they're called The Big Heist, and they're doing a triple album called Mo seventy five, which I actually really like. I mean, some people can't stand his voice, and that's fine. I, I mean, he sounds like Jonathan Richmond singing in the shower. Uh, <laughs> yeah, his
0: singing voice is fine in the movie.
1: I mean, yeah, yeah, but uh, but I know I know some people find it like all his stuff kind of sounds a little too demoey. Um, but he's got this album called Mo 75, and it's meant to be a, a, a sort of meta-narrative. It's like his Quadrophenia. It's sort of about this guy who's graduating, or just graduated, rather, and is trying to spend a really great summer, and no one is kind of rising to the occasion. And all the songs are sort of about this idea that, like, you sometimes make grand plan. You have all these ambitions and plans, and you don't follow through because you keep finding excuses to. And so it's kind of about the various characters in this guy, Guy Summer. And then the next album, because there's going to be three of them is sort of about, they finally decide to have a party, which was like, we're going to have this party in the woods. It's going to be great. And I feel like a lot of this stuff stems from Matt. And I use this politely, like he's kind of a square, like he's kind of like a guy who, you uh, know, who didn't, you know, like I said, he, he didn't swear. He doesn't do drugs. He's like straight edge. Right. He's a guy. who's like, you gotta be responsible. He's always talking about like the uh, you know. He, he has actually a big rants where he's like, I'm not sympathetic to drug addicts. They brought it on themselves. Um, and can you, I, but can at you? the feel at the same time, I feel like he has this desire to live these exciting like to to, to sort of romanticize what people find romantic. But he also likes romanticizing the idea of being straight edge. Right. So some of these songs are about like how kind of romantic it is to be. To, to have these kind of, like, 50s nostalgia of, like, what a perfect summer is. It's hip to be square. Yeah. Uh, I think it's wonderful. And I find it a universe that I, you know, repeatedly enjoy um, revisiting. I, I alluded to earlier that he's not... He's only one of many sort of outsider artists that I've had an affinity for as of late. Yeah, who would you recommend? Uh, another guy see? I recommend... And the reason why I chose this one is the most accessible cuz you can watch his movies they're almost all on Amazon Prime and that's where I'd actually encourage people to watch cuz I think that's where he gets the most money from in terms of if you watch it on Amazon uh where I feel like on YouTube I don't know if he's getting Probably I think he I think yet. I I think on YouTube he um he actually went through an aggregator and I think they're collecting most of it. This Kings of horror or something that they sold it to. Yeah. I was not familiar with that brand. No, it's, it's one of the, I mean, I am because they sometimes send stuff to after dark, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but, um, but no, there's a, there's a, the, the reason why I treat Matt was simply because I think he's fairly accessible. You can get his stuff. There's a guy named Mickey Reese that I urge everybody to look out for. He's a filmmaker from Oklahoma who in the past 10 years has made an average of two feature films a year. Wow. Um, And unlike Matt, his stuff is not in sort of a parody space. It is actually very sincere um, dramas. And I would actually compare his work to early Soderbergh. Um, I think he's one of the most interesting uh, American filmmakers working today. And uh, actually through working with Fantastic Fest and at TIFF, I've, I've started to see some of his work and I've actually been connecting him with some producers so that he can actually get a real budget because all these movies are made for like under 10 grand but he does like he has an amazing loose remake of Autumn Sonata called Strike Dear Mistress and Cure His Heart that is really remarkable
0: I think you've mentioned this to me once yeah
1: and he has an amazing Elvis biopic which I do believe I mentioned to you at one point called Alien Mickey Reese's Alien and uh, it's 48 hours in the life of Elvis and I think it's really beautifully shot really esoteric and uh, interesting ways but I just love his compulsion to just keep making stuff like he just gets the same actors together and they just go to a new location and they make a movie about that location um, and I, I really ap- applaud that there's a guy in LA named Bennett Jones who did a film called I'm a Knife with Legs which I played at uh, what the film festival years ago he's slowly working on his next film I urge anyone who loves um, who loves to laugh no but it's <laughs> anyway but it, 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 his stuff isn't in a it's kind of like Flight of the Concords meets uh, the Zucker Brothers meets... Um, uh, there's another one that his style sort of really reminds me of. But anyway, there's, it's a weird kind of action musical comedy. Very lo-fi. Yes. Really, really
0: funny. It's got a Grand House vibe to it, even though it's not that thing at all.
1: Yeah. Uh, I Am a Knife with Legs uh, is on Vimeo, and you can rent and buy it. Really, really recommend it. Um, you know, there's a filmmaker that we're going to be showing... Uh, at, what, the film festival this year, too, who I think is extraordinary and sadly passed away um, when she was quite young, and that's Sarah Jacobson. Have you ever seen any of Sarah Jacobson's films? Oh, uh... I
0: was,
1: I was a teenage serial killer and uh, Mary Jane's Not a Virgin Anymore. She she died of cancer, but she won the Sundance Jury Award with Mary Jane's Not a Virgin Anymore. Okay. But we're going to be showing the new restoration of Mary Jane's Not a Virgin Anymore, and I think it's a real remarkable work that, again, honestly, when, when it goes back to what... You know, when filmmakers ask me what I'm looking for as a programmer at TIFF or or After Dark, so much about it is, is character and personality and identity, and don't focus so much on the structure of your movie. Or like, I feel like, I feel like so much, so many writers focus on structure and the structure has to be perfect and has to adhere to these rules and these formulas. At the end of the day, if these are characters that I am interested in hanging out with, and listening to and hearing them bounce off and what and wondering what's going to happen to them that is all I need. And, and when you watch something like Mary Jane's not a virgin anymore, which I've described as like, it's kind of like a feminist clerks. If clerks were a much better movie and I, uh, you know, respect clerks, but but
0: it's messy, and cheap.
1: but it's messy and cheap. And and so is this film. Uh, But there's something about this film that the, it's interior world is just so wonderful. And you just want to live and hang with these characters in a really amazing way. Um, And it, and it it surprises you i think because i think one of the problems is when people get highly
0: structured it's hard to surprise because you just are familiar with how these stories go and well, like yeah how, we've all internalized the rhythm of the first incident in 18 minutes and yeah. then an action scene every seven and or then it, and it then else. it just becomes about as you said earlier like waiting for things to happen
1: um and the best uh, and it's not even like i'm saying go ma- everyone should just make hangout movies. Even though I love a good hangout movie. yeah, no,
0: there's room for those. The worst thing in my experience is a movie that tells me what it's going to do and then does it. Yeah. Uh, and does nothing else. But,
1: you know. I, I, on, a, on the same note, it is fun when a movie tells you what you're going to do. No, the, no the, it's right. The movie shouldn't tell you what it should do. The movie should do something that makes you think, is the movie going to do this? Right, yeah. And then deliver. Because that's always satisfying. The ups- Upsetting that expectation is satisfying as well. But it's one or the other, and but if you telegraph it in a way, it just you're and you in the audience feels like they're just waiting for it to happen in a non-suspenseful way, then yeah, what are we doing? Yeah, the,
0: just the idea of, to get back to the Insidious movies, that all people want is that again, yeah. and so let's do that five times. Or the Resident Evil movies where they yeah. have a formula, it will not change no matter what you do, or the Underworld films. I, all yeah. of these films that open with this incredible pitch, this potential for... You know, like like a radial narrative where you can just keep going in a different direction every time. Uh, the thing about Insidious that would change everything, uh, you know, you, you said it. Like, what if other people are having this experience? Like, yeah, yeah, we have the internet for that. What about that? What about an idea of all of these different locations being connected to each other and figuring out like just. Well, right? I just
1: always thought the brilliant scale. concept of that first film was that you can move and it's not going to matter. Yeah, and and so it's like, I always felt that was the hook to me. You can move, does not matter. It comes with you.
0: Yeah, and it's early enough in the film that it becomes the first you know, real plot twist.
1: Yeah, and I thought that was brilliant, and I just wish that they had embraced that direction and kind of went with that.
0: Yeah, and the thing I will say for The River Beast is that even though there is a standard horror structure yeah. of the creature and its defeat, I did not know from scene to scene what was going to be <laughs> happening. No, no. And again, as
1: I alluded to this, again, it builds up to, I think, a magnificent punchline that is just so... Um, it's, I've always just said, I just love the layers to everything that happens in that scene from both. Uh, it involves a statue, as I'll, I'll say. There's a sure. statue. Yep. and it, But it also involves a TV conference. And the idea of how underpopulated that room that they're doing a TV conference for this thing, that there are certain characters not in the room but are watching on TV, just so that they can show a shot that people are watching them on TV, I find, I find all those levels and layers to what is happening so funny <laughs> and so ridiculous. And it's just a, an accumulative effect of all the quirk in that movie maximizing in that one scene. Yeah, uh, yeah. and that, and that I, I, I just really adore and think is, is so wonderful. Um, can I plug one random thing that I saw sure. that I just think people should check out yeah, if they're interested in seeing and it's Canadian too. So this will be, uh, some can con, Um, You might have noticed it on Facebook, but there's this TV show that I just discovered that I've just fallen down the rabbit hole and I'm so obsessed with because I think it also feels like it was born from a place of, let's just be creative and just, who cares that we don't have any money and resources? Let's just be creative and be interesting. And it was a Canadian television children's series from Northern Ontario, apparently largely produced out of Ottawa. And apparently it screened a lot of the public access um, affiliates throughout the region. It's called Cowboy Who.
0: I do not know this.
1: Uh, I had not heard of the show. It's by a guy named Jeff Green who was responsible for some full motion video games that were Canadian video games in the mid-90s called Mode and Midnight Stranger that were about like interacting at a party that I always found really interesting and wanting to do something with that. But then I was like, Oh, he made this TV show lasted for four seasons. And I've described the show as if Mark Frost and the kids in the hall wrote the segments of YTVs, the zone and it took place in the satellite of love. Uh, and, And someone else asked, like, uh, is it like Doctor Who? I'm like, it's like Doctor Who if Doctor Who was Laura Palmer. (laughs) Like, the (laughs) concept is that it's a Howdy Doody TV show, and in the very first episode, the host of this Howdy Doody show goes missing in the middle of a joke. And so subsequent episodes are an investigation as to where the host went missing while the co-host is still trying to host the kids' show. And it is a kid's show because it was aired for children. A kid's show about a kid's show. It's a kid's show about a kid's show. And as the show goes on, it becomes about an alien cover-up and there's a conspiracy. They always incorporate weird... They always frame the advertising blocks in a way that turn the random advertising that you would see into a joke. Because they'll say something like, uh, the next series of videos you're about to see inspired a religion. And then ads will play. And then they're like, as you can imagine, what kind of civilization and religion that, you know, like weird, weird kind of meta comedy and meta jokes. Uh, and it's all done for no money with like uh, maybe a cast of three people. Huh. And uh, they la- the fact that it lasted for four seasons since it's cre- clearly constructed this elaborate, labyrinthine mythology, this is so on brand for me. Like This is is the stuff that I live for. And uh, I feel like that'll be my next uh, year, is figuring out how can I spread the gospel of Cowboy Who and get this guy, Jeff Green, uh, who I have contacted with and I feel terrible that I haven't been able to set anything up with him yet. Mostly because I feel like he's just done so much that I just don't know how to sell it or how to Position it, mm-hmm. um, but Cowboy Who is on YouTube, and if you look up Jeff Green, and apparently the first season was released on, as an independent DVD. Uh, if you like Pee Wee's Playhouse, um, and wished it was even weirder, <laughs> Cowboy Who is the show.
0: That sounds fantastic uh, and deeply disturbing to someone yeah. who would stumble across it. Yeah, <laughs> this is how. Yeah, you're right. This is how religious are born. <laughs> uh, so yeah, as far as as far as the Matt Farley thing goes the um uh the river beast is there anything i mean it's it's the standard closer for the podcast i'm not sure it really applies here is there anything of don't let the river beast get you that you've used or borrowed or stolen or incorporated into your own well you know what
1: i think actually matt's vaudevillian sensibility has been something that actually has rubbed off on justin and i for laser blast that we've actually borrowed some of the ideas that he's he's embraced the stuff that we've liked to do for our screenings in terms of doing a goofy intro or, uh, trying to build out a a narrative that kind of is a joke for no one but ourselves. Um, those are things that I, uh, and actually it's stuff that I've incorporated into, um, uh, midnight madness. Like the very fact that when I took, took over the midnight madness section at TIFF, I had this idea of having a hat stand on stage that I throw my hat onto. Um, because at that point, I actually had retired my hat as like a, I, I, for the listeners at home, I wore a hat for 10 years, basically. Signature hat? It was a very signature hat, but then I, I stopped wearing it. And when I got the position, I was like, you know what? I'm going to bring it back just for midnight <laughs> as a uniform and create this bit of stage business that I'm not ever going to explain. Um, I'm just going to do it. And I felt that was an idea that very much came from someone like Matt Farley that he kind of taught me that was like... Sometimes just do the thing, and if it becomes something that people remember, that's great. If not, who cares? Like yeah. you know, because you had fun doing it. Yeah, and that's 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 I feel the lesson of Farley, and that's why I look at that guy and go, man, you you've won life. You're doing what you love to do, uh, and sure, you sometimes grumble that not enough people pay attention to you, uh, but you also know that the very act of grumbling is giving you a lot of entertainment. <laughs> so. Uh, like you, he, it's clearly a bit of a performative thing for him, but he's, I mean, he puts in, pulls in a good income from people accidentally listening to his music on Spotify. He makes several more on commissions because people now commission him to write music. He occasionally writes jingles for uh, local, uh, uh, car dealerships and stuff like that. Um, and he makes movies with his friends and 20 people from around the world come and see him play over year. so I mean I feel like he's one life and that's why I try to take that ethos and that spirit and I've begun to put that into the work uh, that I'm continuing to do is to just sort of have that spirit and remind oneself that you always have fun and it's you know if you build it they will come <laughs> it doesn't get in any cornball and fortune cookie and then that
0: no, but it's a good I mean it's a good philosophy yeah also, you get to show Dial Code Santa Claus. Yes, yes, which uh, it, it's ama-
1: which is an amazing Christmas. Uh, thank you so much, too, Norm, for plugging it in, in Now Magazine. Oh, no,
0: it's, we needed a holiday movie. It's yeah, just... and
1: it is it is a remarkable holiday film. Uh, quickly, it's a... It's yeah, a,
0: so this will be screening. If you're listening to this on Tuesday when the episode drops, it's screening in Toronto on Thursday night, so you have time, start walking, you'll yep, make it. You'll make it uh, uh, at absolutely.
1: the Royal Cinema as part of the Laser Blast Film Society. Uh, it was a film we screened in... Uh, One of our second or third years of programming uh, the series at the Royal, which is a series that celebrates sort of obscure, eccentric movies, typically from uh, the early 80s to the uh, early mid-90s. We sometimes leave that framework a bit and go a little further either direction. but they're movies that we just feel are sort of bizarre and definitely just not on your radar. Like we're not interested in conventional canonical cult films. We want the films that haven't yet made the canon. Right. Uh, and so actually I feel like Dial Code Santa Claus is poised to actually now enter that canon because it's finally given been given a restoration. Uh, to gatekeepers like the Almo Drafthouse and their, their American Genre Film Archive have Uh, sort of championing the film and now touring the film. So I think it is going to become more of a well-recognized film, um, which is great because it's a really wonderful, um, not really a kid's movie, but a kid's movie about a 10 year old who believes in Santa Claus so much that he's waiting up all night to, to, to to get video, uh, video evidence that Santa Claus exists. Unfortunately, it's the same night that a uh, potential child predator has broken into his house dressed as Santa Claus with ill intent and this kid, thinking he's actually been pursued by the real Santa Claus, must now decide whether or not he has to do the unthinkable, that he has to kill Santa Claus to protect both himself and his uh, uh, bedridden grandfather. <laughs>
0: so, We've all had this choice. Yeah,
1: it's all, it's, its, it's you know, everyone becomes premise. a man at one point. Yeah. And this is a story many are familiar uh, uh, with. Uh, but it is a really remarkable film. The director would go on to shoot a lot of TV for George Lucas and Spielberg. He directed a lot of the young Indiana Jones episodes. I really don't understand why he didn't have a bigger career. When you watch this movie, just the, from an aesthetic level, um, it's really remarkable but you know he might have just made the wise choice to have a family uh, and you know not work himself to death and work in where it was profitable which was television yeah. and commercials in the and, early
0: 90s you can't blame anybody
1: yeah I mean it's uh, but he's a, he's a really strong visualist the movie stars his son which answers the question of how he's able to traumatize this kid and not get, and get away with it <laughs> uh, because it's a really remarkable performance from the kid who really looks scared out of his mind as Santa Claus is, is coming to get him um, but the kid is, is, is growing up well adjusted and now is a VFX supervisor, so hey, you know. Well, he's seen it from the other side. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Dial-Code Santa Claus uh, on Thursday, December 20th at the Royal Cinema. Uh, it's
0: going to be a really fun screening, and the film has never look better. Yeah, I, I've seen the, well, I saw the Vimeo link, but yeah. I projected it in here, and it looks pretty great. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, if uh, if you are listening to this after the fact, it'll probably be on disc before too long. Yes, yeah. you know, those... it's, it's already
1: on disc in Europe, mm-hmm. if you can't wait. Uh, but my understanding is that a
0: North American release is around the corner. Yeah, Alamo doesn't miss a chance. <laughs> uh, but yeah, try to see it in a the theater. It will be an experience. My thanks to Peter Koplowski, who'll be presenting that restoration of Dial Code Santa Claus this Thursday, December 20th at the Royal, with Justin DeClue, his partner in the Laser Blast Film Society. If you're in Toronto, you should check that out. It's going to be bananas. You can find Peter on Twitter at Peter Kapow, all one word, P E T E R K A P O W. And you can find Don't Let the River Beast Get You on DVD from Brain Damage Films. It's also streaming on Amazon Video in the US, and in Canada, you can find it on YouTube. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S E M Cast and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Oh, and come back next week. We're not taking Christmas off. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. <laughs>